1: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf. I'm here in Washington, D.C. Also in Washington, D.C., I think we've got Corey Shockey, somewhere there, unpacking her bag still from from traveling from London.
0: Absolutely true.
1: And in Alexandria, Virginia, we've got Rosa Brooks. Hi, Rosa.
2: Hi, David.
1: And I don't know where David Sanger is, but I know he's out there somewhere. Where are you, David? I'm in the undisclosed location in New York. Undisclosed location in New York. So... Uh, There you have it. He's handling the New York side of the duties today. Um, And I want to get gradually to our usual topic, which has to do with uh, foreign policy and national security, but I want to get there a little bit through the back door, so bear with me here. Uh, The news that's going to dominate the week, I think, um, uh, regardless of what happens in the world, barring some unforeseen calamity, um, is the initiation of impeachment trial in the Senate on Tuesday at 1 p.m. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think we ought to spend a moment or two talking about what that might mean um, or not mean. I, I, I think that, you know, there's going to be um, 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 mountains of coverage of this uh, in all media. Uh, But in all likelihood, it'll it'll be over in a few days, and uh, GOP will guide things the way they want to. And even if the Democrats make a good case, the president will be acquitted.
3: And, David, then what? Well, really good question. Um, My guess is that uh, if he's acquitted—and I I have my doubts it's going to happen quite as quickly as you suggest, David—I think— There's going to be a fight over witnesses. There's going to be a fight over uh, evidence to be introduced. I have a suspicion that there probably are three or four Republican votes to call witnesses uh, because I think that um, Susan Collins and others have been trying to put together a group to say we at least need a full and fair trial here. Uh, And she probably has some, um, since she's up for re-election, she probably has some people back in Maine demanding that. Um, So I think this could go on for a bit. And in fact, if they get into a fight over witnesses, it could end up in the courts trying to decide the question of whether executive privilege takes precedent over the Senate's uh, impeachment responsibilities. And if that's the case, I think this could go on for a number of weeks. But in the end, I don't think there's any doubt about the outcome And that's what makes this particularly um, concerning, because if the outcome is an acquittal, even if there's a majority that votes to convict, obviously you need two thirds, you'll have a president who will declare that he has been exonerated, that everything that he said about his enemies pursuing this for political purposes is accurate, that he um, survived the Mueller investigation, he survived the Ukraine investigation, and uh, I think he will take that as an argument that uh, he has been completely vindicated. What do you think, Corey? Is David right?
0: Uh, David is always right.
3: David. Whoa. Wait, let's,
1: let's, let's just tap the brakes there. <laughs> a there's a way, to, there's <laughs> a way to start the year. <laughs> <laughs> Remember <remed>,
2: that, <laughs> Mr. Rothschild.
1: Yes, yes, uh, sir. You are always right, I, sir.
2: I...
0: Uh, Being newly back in North America and not an expert on the finer points of Senate rules, I am not sure as to the timing. David makes a persuasive case, though, that uh, Republicans who don't want to look to their voters as though they are not taking this seriously— may want to call witnesses, and then it certainly will be true there will be a fight about witnesses and about executive privilege. The president's claims on executive privilege, I would defer to Rosa on, but they sound exorbitant to this American voter. The notion that the president is in no way accountable throughout his or her term of office but they are only accountable at the ballot box every four years seems to me surely not what the founding fathers intended in setting up this system nor has it been the practice of of presidents some of whom have been hauled before the congress for uh, to pass judgment on their behavior while in office so i'm curious what people think about the executive privilege claim Uh, But I also agree with David's conclusion that uh, there does not appear to be a groundswell of concern among Republicans that their voters are demanding the president's removal from office or even a vote of censure. Uh, So uh, unless things change dramatically, the president will be acquitted and remain in office.
1: So, Rosa... What do you think of that?
2: I think that David and Corey and you are all correct. Um, the Insofar as the impeachment process is not going to fundamentally change uh, Donald Trump's near-term fate and possibly may have no particular effect on his long-term fate. Um, I don't expect that many in his base are paying very close attention. I think that the top-line message that they're getting from Fox News is that this is in fact a witch hunt and it's going to be over soon anyway, so no need to pay attention regardless because it, 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 it's unfair and it doesn't matter. It'll be gone soon anyway. So they're checked out. So I think that the, 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 the revelations that leave the rest of us breathless and swooning and saying, oh my God, did you see the latest about you know Parnas and his texts and what he told Rachel Maddow or this or that, uh, I think are having absolutely no impact on his base. Um, and as a result are having absolutely no impact on powerful Republicans in Congress. I I agree that there are a handful of Republicans who are a little bit on the fence because they are facing pressure uh, on their left flank as well. Um, Whether that will mean that we get a handful of witnesses or not, I think it's obviously too soon to say. But frankly, even if we get witnesses, even if a few Republicans enough uh join with Democrats in saying things like, well, gee, we maybe we ought to hear from the president's lawyer, maybe you ought to hear from John Bolton. There too. I don't think that there I, I I think there is very little likelihood, not none, but very little likelihood, that any witness who is called could say anything that would once again make any dent in Trump, the support of Trump's base or the support of Republicans in Congress. I, you know, Corey is quite right to contrast this. With previous uh, impeachments, obviously the one that most of us remember, the one that actually happened, that most of us remember, um, was Clinton's impeachment. And my God, you know, remember watching Clinton's uh, televised deposition, which lasted for hours, um, and that was, of course, too the product of extensive negotiation between Clinton's team of lawyers and the uh, Ken Starr's team, and so forth. But At the end of the day, we saw the president of the United States uh, giving sworn testimony on television about his sex life and answering or giving what became some rather famous, infamous non-answers to questions about uh, his sex life. Um, It depends what the meaning of is, is, and so forth. It's it's virtually impossible to imagine this president agreeing to subject himself to that level of exposure and scrutiny. Uh, So I think that whether the impeachment process lasts three days or three weeks, um, it's not going to have any particular impact short term. Trump is not going to be removed from office. Uh, I don't think he's going to be censured. Does it have a long term impact? Harder to say. You know because I think this the election of 2020 is very much going to come out to turn out who can energize their base more effectively uh, and what do the unicorn, you know, few unicorn-like independents or so-called swing voters actually do. Do they vote at all? Who do they vote for? Those things, I, I, I really hesitate to make any predictions about how this plays out. You know, does the impeachment end up energizing Trump's base so they all show up? or does it leave just enough of them, just queasy enough that they don't make a huge big effort if it's raining to bother to go vote? Who can say long-term, but short-term nothing?
3: I'm sorry to interrupt. I I was just going to say, one thing to remember while we're all doing these comparisons to the uh, Clinton impeachment is that some of the incentives here for both sides are quite different. That, um, as Rosa points out, for Clinton, it was viewed by his his own um, team, that having him testify played to his advantage because even though he had admitted what he did, he was contrite about it, right? He said, I made a huge error. They believed that contrition would help and that the testimony would indicate that this was about a sordid sexual issue and not about an issue of state. Um, and, and they were Right. And they were, they were right. And on the, on the issue of calling witnesses, I think it's worth remembering that the incentives from the Clinton impeachment are all different than they are uh, in the case of the Trump uh, impeachment trial. In the Clinton case, uh, Clinton's team believed that it was to his advantage to go testify because it would make clear that this was not an issue of state, but just a sordid personal affair for which he has apologized. In Trump's case, it is an issue of state, the facts are not with him, and he has not apologized. And so the result is that um, they believe that if he was under scrutiny and testimony and cross-examination, he would basically dig himself a deeper hole. So they don't want him anywhere near a public discussion of what he did and why he did it. The second thing that is a big difference, I think, from the Clinton impeachment was that the Senate did not want any testimony to take place in the well of the Senate because it was going to be sexual in nature. They didn't think it was appropriate for the Senate. In this case, you have a group of people in uh, the Democrats and maybe a small number of the Republicans who think it is in their interest to have all of this laid out um, in the trial. So, it's a little bit misleading to sort of follow too much of the Clinton mop.
1: Yeah. Nope, 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 don't no question that it's misleading. Um, but I guess what I was getting at on the earlier side was there's gonna be a lot of discussion about this kind of thing. The Clinton model, not the Clinton model. There's gonna be discussion about what the Republicans are doing or not doing. There's gonna be a lot of discussion by Democrats saying this proves he did it, this proves he did. It. I mean, I watch Twitter and I almost have sort of a tear in my eye because people are like, you know, saying, here's another piece of evidence, and here's another piece of evidence. And the evidence isn't going to matter. It is important to have the trial. So that people, you know, know that there's some degree of accountability. But a week from now or two weeks from now or three weeks from now, this is going to be over. And Donald Trump is going to think he was exonerated. And um, the world is going to continue spinning on its axis. And we're going to be in a presidential election. And so far, this hasn't moved anything within the context of that presidential election. Um, and if you're somebody out there, you know, in the world and in, an, in, a, in another um, country, Corey, this is going to be a kind of a non-event, don't you think?
0: Yeah, it's going to be a circus. Um, and our punishment for this as Americans is that we're going to have to listen to a lot of earnest, well-intentioned sermons from our friends around the world about us being a beacon of democracy and how could you do this and one thing and another. And before people get impatient with those earnest, well-meaning friends of our country, please, please, please remember that they actually like us and that we're disappointing them should tell us how the high regard in which they hold American democracy. And let's not lose sight of that when we're being... Um, condescended to by our friends, or when they're not condescending, but they're explaining to their own populations, the Wild West circus that is democracy in America.
1: Um, yeah, but it seems to me, Rosa, that the the, the punchline of this, more of the same, is is going to be compounded a little bit because We're going to go through a period of two or three months of Democratic primaries um, in which one of one, two, three people might emerge as the Democratic um, candidate. Um, And, you know, it makes a difference who that candidate is. But essentially all the Democrats are going to vote for the Democrat and all the Republicans are going to vote for the Republicans. And what's more, in terms of the way that the Democrats deal with the rest of the world... Um that you know that there are some subtle differences in how the candidates are portraying things um but what would you what would you say you know if if rosef if, if a democratic candidate appoints three thousand people and we were doing a venn diagram among the various democratic candidates of those three thousand people, what do you think the overlap is in other words isn't the, the ultimate outcome here, the Democratic brand versus the Republican brand, the same people doing the same kind of things regardless of the outcome of the primaries?
2: Um, yes and no. I, I mean, I think that you're absolutely right. You're, you're suggesting basically that um, if we say, who would President Bernie Sanders appoint uh, to serve in his administration, uh, who would Joe Biden appoint? Who would Elizabeth Warren appoint? Um, Etc. Um, that of the three thousand or so people each president can appoint, frankly, probably twenty eight hundred would be the same in the uh, administrations of either president. Um, particularly when you get below the, when you get below the cabinet level, um, you know that 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 Bernie Sanders is not going to find you know three hundred. Brand new people to appoint to Pentagon political pointy positions. He might find ten brand new people who have never served in a previous administration. Uh, same goes for every other agency. Um, so, in that sense, yes, there. You know, in in a normal administration, ninety five percent of the the business of governing and policymaking happens. Um, way below the radar of the president, the White House, and in fact, way below the radar most of the time of the media, you just have the, the federal government kind of chugging along and USAID is, is, you know, entering into contracts with uh, NGOs to do anti-malaria vaccination, you know, work or whatever in, in wherever, uh, you know, the labor department is chugging away, investigating complaints and so forth. Um, And that does not change very much from administration to administration in in normal times. Um, That said, I think that there are there are two ways in which it does make a difference. Um, Number one, and and most obviously, you know, the Trump administration in particular is, is not a normal administration. And the Trump administration has really kind of cut off much of the government from normal governing and policymaking. Uh, and in fact we've seen kind of political reach down at really unprecedented lower levels, you know, such that we see the National Archive doctoring photographs of the 2017 Women's March uh, so that the picked signs that say mean things about Donald Trump were blurred over so that his feelings wouldn't be hurt. Um, you know, we see pressure on the, you know, the National Weather Service to alter its uh, analysis because Trump doesn't want to look silly. Uh, for his uh, ridiculous statements about hurricanes. That kind of stuff is really unprecedented. Um, and what would the, the impact of that in the Trump administration is it sort of nullifies the the benefits of having a, a relatively professionalized um, group of government officials, including political appointees who, who may serve multiple administrations um, because you just have this wackiness going on at the White House. That said, obviously, if any of the Democrat w- Democrats win, we're out of Trump land. I still think it, it matters who wins, because even if only a couple hundred of the 3000 or so political appointees might differ from administration to administration, whether it's the Klobuchar administration or the Biden or, or Warren administration, uh, um, I think that that can have a really powerful symbolic punch you know, think of the difference, just for instance, I mean, there's only one dimension in which you could have a, a symbolic punch that matters between having largely white male group of cabinet secretaries versus having a group of cabinet secretaries who are diverse in terms of gender, race, ethnicity, and everything else, you know, that that would make a powerful difference. If You have cabinet level, you know, high profile appointees strongly associated with particular causes or ideologies. You know, that the signaling effect of that and the degree to which that then empowers or doesn't empower other groups, both outside of the government and inside it, that it can make a difference. So I, I don't think it's irrelevant who wins the who wins the Democratic nomination. I think that, you know, while we always exaggerate during campaign season the difference a president can make under normal, again, normal non-Trumpian circumstances, it's those, those relatively minor differences can add up to quite a lot.
1: Well, I guess what I'm getting at here, David, is that um, you know over the next six, eight, ten weeks, there are going to be these two dominant stories here in the U.S., and uh, one of them is going to be impeachment, and we sort of can predict how it's going to turn out. And one of them is going to be a democratic election. And the reality is that no matter who wins a democratic election, particularly in issues of foreign policy and national security, but probably in almost anything else, because there's a lot of alignment with them. They emphasize differences now, but there's mostly alignment, that we're likely to be overemphasizing the importance of these stories uh, in the long run um, for the reasons we've just talked about.
3: I think that's right. I, I wouldn't overemphasize the alignment in foreign policy. I actually think it's less than we think. You know that the Times does these um, uh, periodic uh, moments where we send out um, survey questions to each of the campaigns. We've done them on uh, abortion issues. We've done them on um, uh, gun rights uh, and gun control issues, and so forth. And we've just sent one out on, on foreign policy. And while we haven't written up the results yet, and I'm still going through what we've gotten back, I'm struck by some very fundamental differences among the Democratic candidates. And we should not um, uh, leave ourselves in the belief that uh, all these candidates fundamentally have a common worldview, because at least right now they don't. They they might want to in office. Um, That said, I'm not sure anybody votes on that. And in the end, this election is going to be an election that focuses in large part as a referendum on the way Donald Trump has conducted his presidency. And I think it's going to turn on a fairly small number of states and a fairly small number of voters, some of them independent, some of them Democrats who couldn't bring themselves to vote for Hillary Clinton and voted uh, for Trump. Uh, who made the difference for Donald Trump. And um, let's not kid ourselves that this election is going to be decided in New York, California, and Texas. It's not. And uh, so we are down to how the the president's governance, demeanor, behavior, and tweets have played with a group of people who took through the long ball and voted for him in 2016. And then we're also down to the question of whether or not the president, if he does lose, can create a perception that the vote was rigged and that uh, in some way the deep state uh, was manipulating it. I mean, these small caps, deep state, not deep state radio. We don't think you personally are doing this, David. Um, And uh, that that may in the end uh, tell us something about the most perilous 90 days we're going to have which is if the election's close, what happens uh, between Election Day and Inauguration Day?
1: Yeah, I guess what I'm trying to get at overall here is that periodically it's a useful idea to take a step back and evaluate things in a longer-term context and stop with the heavy breathing of the moment's story. Um, and I could even do it a step further, Corey, and it's a bit of a challenge here, but you know, Donald Trump is a horrific person and he um is uh discrediting the united states wherever he goes and he's challenged our alliances and he's challenged policies of the past 75 years um but you know net net um he hasn't actually done that much that's produced dramatic change you know he said i'm out of nafta and he's produced nafta what i consider nafta 1.1 it's not even that different usmca he he uh, got into a trade war with China, and, you know, his phase one agreement is really a kind of a non-agreement, a band-aid. It doesn't really change much of anything. In fact, it just is an attempt to reset things at roughly the level they were before the failed uh, trade war. Uh, he's rattled his sabers with regard to NATO. Um, uh, but, you know the, the you know, the alliance remains relatively intact. Getting out of JCPOA was consequential. Um, But it may be undone. And in fact, it may be that 20 years from now, you know, people are going to go look back at this period and say, well, you know, Bush and Obama and Trump all were kind of sort of a little more isolationist than their predecessors, a little more cautious about getting involved in the world after Bush in 2003 anyway. And, uh, you know, we're getting into more tension with China. We're getting less engaged with the Middle East. Um, and that we, you know, because we find Trump an abomination, um, might might be a little surprised that history is going to look back at this and say, you know, these our behavior during these periods was all kind of of a piece, different on the surface, but ben- beneath the surface, more or less the same. What do you think, Corey?
0: I think it's a really interesting point, David. Um, I I do recall hearing a lot. About George W. Bush collapsing the international order, when he withdrew from the um, uh, from the ABM treaty, and when he proceeded with going to war in Iraq, when several NATO allies were strongly opposed to that. Uh, so I'm it seems to me entirely possible. That in our febrile age, the political allegations we make against policies we don't favor are outsized and, you know, uh, I do recall even some Democratic friends calling uh, Mitt Romney a grave danger to the country, which is difficult for me as a conservative to imagine. Uh, That acknowledged, I still do think that President Trump is likelier to be considered a major outlier rather than part of a continuity of the United States rebalancing after overcommitting in the Middle East, after becoming too obsessed with terrorism and terrorists. Uh, after September 11th and and you know the the slow accretion of attention to a a dangerous China all that said though he <laughs> really does feel like a pretty substantial outlier to me for a couple of reasons the first is that other american presidents even president Uh, George W. Bush, but certainly President Obama, even if they were conducting the same policies, they would have done so in a way that minimized the costs and maximized the advantages to the United States of the policies they were seeking to enact. And their views may have differed somewhat on what those actions were, but, but their eyes were headed Zionward, as Abraham Lincoln liked to say. Um, That's not true with President Trump. He's largely indifferent to costs imposed by his policies on the United States and especially on allies or parties not involved in it. And that is dramatically raising the price of everything he's trying to do. And that won't automatically recenter after President Trump leaves office. It is going to take at least two presidencies for the United States to regain, if in fact it does regain, uh, confidence of others that we are trustworthy, that we won't make erratic decisions that impose costs on them, that we will honor obligations taken into, uh, and that we will care about the concerns of others whose margin for error is a lot sl- more slender than is the ar- than margin of error the United States operates under.
1: Okay. What, what, do, you, what do you think, Rosa? Do you think, I mean, I, I, I guess I'm just, you know, Corey, I think, used the term febrile. I think everything is very febrile at the moment. I think social media makes things febrile. I think you know, short news cycles make things febrile. I think uh, I think the fact that uh, the, the president is so outrageous tends to make us um, febrile. And I'm just trying to sort of take a step back and say, you know, I mean, is, is the impeachment process important? Yes. But if it doesn't produce a major change, we have to take that into consideration. Is the election process important? Yes, but if there isn't that much difference on a lot of issues between some of the candidates, and the nature of the government is going to be largely the same, depend, you know, regardless of the candidate, uh, then it's not quite as great as we say it is. And if, you know, the, the 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 outcome of the election is important, Trump is terrible and a threat and a threat to U.S. national security and is damaging the country every day, but. You know, it, it, it's it's not. You know, there are many Trump policies uh, that are not that radically different from what has come before or would come after. And we tend to overstate and think that somehow everything's going to change on a dime. Uh, and and that that's you know, it's also dangerous. It's it's also dangerous to overstate the consequences or to expect big sweeping changes. And that's that's why I'm asking the question here, Rosa.
2: Yeah, it's a really interesting question, and it's 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 a kind of a complicated one, I think, um, because I I think that I think it's true that if you look at what Trump has done solely on the level of policy, um, he's done some really bad things on the level of policy, but so have plenty of other administrations, both Democratic and Republican, right? I mean, stupid policy decisions are are sadly nothing new. Um, and uh, you know, some of them have only short-term consequences and can be corrected. Some of them have really profound consequences that last for many, many decades. I mean, I mean, you think about you know the Vietnam War, the decision to invade Iraq, um, uh, one of which a Democrat was responsible for, one of which a Republican was responsible for. You know, that those were policy decisions that involved, uh, at a minimum, lots of mistakes. And that had really profound and catastrophic consequences. So, so we certainly can't say that you know Trump is the first president ever to do things that are just really bad ideas. Um, um, he's not. Uh, and you know, no matter how you feel about the uh, killing of Suleimani most recently, or about his decision to pull troops out of Syria, which didn't really, in the end, completely happen, but sort of happened and screwed over the Kurds in the process. Um, all those things, you know, those seem in some ways not necessarily any worse than the types of bad policy moves previous presidents have made. I do think that that what is profoundly different with Trump um, has to do partly with rhetoric, um, partly with, with process or the lack thereof. Um, Trump has been willing, as, as we've as we've said many times, to kind of throw out the the rule book when it comes to both process norms and norms about the rule of law and norms about anti-corruption, anti-nepotism. And and so part of what Trump has done and and part of what Trump has done is, I think, really put the the whole system such as it is into very profound jeopardy. And and let me say what I mean by that. You know that that American democracy, such as it is, um, it's never been completely democratic. It's it's arguably after a a historical period of you know over 100 years where it became gradually more democratic, has become substantially less democratic again in the last uh, you know three four decades, and particularly accelerating in the last decade and a half. But nevertheless, for whatever for whatever it's worth, whatever remains of American democracy. That whole tradition of, you know, orderly transitions from one administration to another and so forth, you know, it rests on people having faith in the system, however tattered it may be, to more or less work and to be capable of self-correction. And it rests on their having faith that it's not a zero-sum game, you know, that even if, you know, uh okay, gosh, George W. Bush won the Supreme Court Battle of the Hanging Chads, but if you're a Democrat, you think, oh, well, our turn will come, you know, and then when a Democrat wins, the Republicans think, oh, well, you know, too bad, but our turn will come. And I think what Trump has done is, is, is that he, he has so highlighted the, the Democratic structural defects of our system and so whipped up the, the kind of political... Divisiveness that a lot of Americans have really profoundly begun to lose faith that the system has any ability to self-correct ever, and have be, and I, th- I think this is true on both the Republican and the Democratic side. A lot of people are losing faith that you know that their needs will be in some way, shape, or form taken into consideration and addressed ever, and that's the really dangerous thing. You know, that's that's the. When you lose that, that's when when you look comparatively at at other countries historically, that you start seeing things like civil war at the most extreme level and at the less extreme level, you know, significant amounts of civil violence, riots, people refusing to abide by government decisions. so that's what I see as the really profound and scary thing that that Trump has done, you know, that he has led and not just him, you know, he's a symptom as well as a cause, but that what we're seeing is is not it's much more than this or that policy decision which i agree is not necessarily you know in the grand scheme of things you know worse than other bad policy decisions of the past but but kind of creating an environment where more and more people have no faith in the ability of the political system to self correct or look after them in
3: the much longer run
1: david do you want to take a, yeah. a crack at this
3: yeah just to Pick up on on Rose's good point about symptom rather than cause. We've so wrapped ourselves up in the person of Donald Trump, and he so plays to that in the way he um, uses the outrageous, or as Maureen Dowd says, you know, the only, only administration you've seen that covers um, its outrageous acts and scandals by doing something more outrageous, right? Uh, that we sort of forget the, the fact that he was a symptom, a backlash, to some degree, a backlash from the Obama years, that um, then tells you that this election is partly about the person of Donald Trump, and as I said before, a referendum on him, but also is going to test the question of whether those symptoms remain to this day to be central to the American body politic. And if they are, then the fact that Donald Trump will one day leave the scene, whether it's uh, a year from this broadcast or whether it is five years from this broadcast, um, means less than the question of whether or not we are going to find our direction once again. And, you know, I think a lot of Democrats were kicking around convincing themselves that because of demographic change and change in the view of the country on many issues— that the world, the country looks a lot more like Barack Obama's America than it looks like Donald Trump's. And this is now being called into question. If uh, in fact Trumpism can live beyond Trump, this concept that we're being taken advantage of around the world, that we're pulling back to our borders, that the, that, uh, the future is a, a, a less diverse America, uh, that we can build higher walls, uh, rather than the sort of inclusiveness that we thought represented uh, both uh, Obama's election and certainly his re-election, then we're into something very different. And I think the hard part in this election is going to be separating out how the electorate feels from the issues of Donald Trump himself.
1: Yeah, I think I, I think it's true. But I think all of you, you know, one of the reasons that I. Uh, enjoy doing the show and have for so long is is that you guys are also smart and have this ability to pull back and take a step away from the daily headlines and i think when you look at a lot of what's going on now it's very difficult sometimes in the heat of the moment to say this is trump or this is a long-term trend um uh this is you know uh you know uh we, where american politics is right now or this is where we've been going for 40 years or our role in the world or or our relative power in the world and so forth and it's 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 useful particularly in moments of a special uh, of especially high intensity to try to step back a little bit and 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 i think when you do you say Trump's terrible, and he reveals much that's bad in the system, and he's as bad as we've ever seen in some respects, and he's done massive damage, um, uh, you know, and some of what he's done is, is in and of itself, uh, you know, worthy of note because of how bad it is. A lot of what he is doing is, is riding a wave that's been going for a long time. Uh, following through on 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 trends or taking advantage of trends or he's a symptom of trends. And that it's helpful to know that because sometimes we say, well we get rid of Trump, we fix everything. But if we get rid of Trump, we don't get rid of Citizens United or our campaign finance system or uh, our tax code or the rise of china or our, our 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 reluctance to get involved overseas or in the middle east or our inability to manage certain aspects of our of our of our foreign policy um, and so you know um, verdict one way or another in, in an impeachment trial or, or or result one way or another in a uh, a, a, a of a a primary vote not going to change those things and 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 if you care about those things then you need to deal with them a different way Uh, and i guess the way to deal with them is to listen deep state radio listen to Corey, listen to david listen to rosa do it on a regular basis come back on thursday hear different perspectives on different sets of issues Uh, come back every week it's 2020 there's a lot going on and we're going to be here for all of it and uh, we'll be offering you some new ways to engage with this. And we'll we'll tell you more about that next week. Um, uh, in the meantime, go to the DSRnetwork.com for more about us and what we're doing. Um, and please, all of you, join me in thanking um, Corey Shockey and David Sanger and Rosa Brooks for a very thought-provoking episode. Thanks, guys.